I knew what it did to people. And I knew for a fact when I never even had been in the studio, I knew that people wanted to hear what the fuck I was doing. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we're talking with two shorts. That's right. He is a hip-hop legend, OG from way back in the day, one of the pioneer rappers of West Coast hip-hop. His rap lyrics are primarily about uh, such charming topics such as pimping, drug use, and promiscuity. People who have heard that music might think it's an odd choice for the Art of Charm podcast. However, there is a little bit of meat on these bones. He's a godfather of Bay Area hip-hop, and since 1996, all but one studio album has charted to the U.S. R&B charts, and all but two charted to the Billboard Top 200. That is no small feat with six platinum and four gold albums. He's collaborated with both Tupac and Biggie during their feud and uh, has no bullet holes to show for it. Today we'll discover why he, and how for that matter, he went from a middle-class upbringing to an OG hip-hop legend with over 30 years in the game and learn what keeps someone not only going but keeps them relevant. And we'll explore why now he's changing his tune a little bit. He's bringing a new message to the local Oakland neighborhoods that life's not all about sex, drugs, and money. Music did save his life, or so he says, and now he's trying to do the same for others. So enjoy this episode of AOC here with Too Short. By the way, when I tried to research you early on, I Googled Too Short, and the first thing that auto-completes in Google is when did Too Short die, or Too Short died, or how did Too Short die? <laughs> That's a little scary, right? Because at first I was like, oh, I missed the window. He's already dead. A lot of celebrities die in the public eye. That's true. Yeah. It's like some sort of rite of passage. It's like they think you died falsely. Some people worry about you. Other people are relieved when they find out it's not true. And it just, when I died, I sold another 1.3 million albums sold. I died. They knocked me off. Do you know how that happened? Was that just a rumor? Were you like, look, tell everyone I died? No, they had specific reasons. It was always that I got shot and it was always like inside of a crack house. And I was like the actual crackhead, like too sure I was trying to smoke crack and he got killed. So you don't even have no beef, no feud, nothing. Cause you made it through the Biggie Tupac thing unscathed. I made it through a lot of feuds because I never really hung out with a lot of rappers. So my crew was never hip hop influenced. And then they were the kind of guys that were like, you're like in a rap battle. Like it would be like the most ridiculous thing to come back around the homies and go, I got to battle this guy. They're like battle. What's a, what's a rap battle? Like punch him or something like it wouldn't have went well with the homies. How come your crew was never a hip hop rap crew? Well, I have a lot of friends that are rappers, a lot of producers, of course, a lot of people yeah. in the industry that are really good friends over the years. But my immediate hardcore crew that I always hung out with was the guys that I came up around in Oakland. No matter where I went, somehow I would involve my main guys and we just kind of kept the same core friendship, like, you know, all these years. But I would always see rap as my job. So I got a life over here. I'm going to go to the studio from 12 noon to 8 p.m. At 8 p.m., I'm going to go hang out with these other people that I fuck like with. We're going to get some dinner and then we're going out and we're going to do blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like that. Just, I would not separate the two unless it was like a too short show or something. Then the work people come around, the away from work people, and, and a lot of times they didn't click. What was your crew listening to, if not rap? Were they like... No, they love hip-hop. The they just didn't make it. Something that a lot of us would agree on, when you deal with creative people, there's a lot of weirdos, a lot of yeah. eclectic, eccentric behavior, and people who are just down-to-earth, blue-collar people, they're like, man, don't bring your weird friends around us. You know, stuff <laughs> like that. We make music. We have to be creative. 
But to them, they're like, man, your boy's weird, man. He's sitting there playing on his phone and tapping on his phone. I'm like, he's probably making a beat. I don't know. Like, yeah, you know, stuff like that. Like, so your crew wasn't as creative as some of your artist friends then. A lot of the guys that I made music with, they didn't like to party. Like, they would go to the big party, but I would go to all the parties. So when I left the studio, I always want to go to like some restaurant or some chick date or something and something. And then I'm going out. And my guys, they like their own world, you know? To go back to their wife and kids or something like that? Some, but others just, you have your own castle in your own world. And you, if you go hang around with Too Short at work all day, and then you go hang around with Too Short at night, you go into Too Short's world. So everybody had their own world. I can understand that. It seems, well, when I watch movies, because I don't hang out with that many rappers either, surprise, surprise, <laughs> you see that it's like studio, the whole crew's there, kind of like when I walked in, this guy's outside hanging out, looking at the equipment, talking about probably what they're going to do tonight, whatever. And you see all of these guys always going out in a group, working as a group, probably live together when they're younger, for all I know. And you just kind of went, nah, I got my job, which is rap, and then I got my career and with that, and then I've got these other friends that I've had forever that I'm always just going to keep. Yeah, I'm not the only one like that. But at, at the same time, there are a lot of guys who they're together. They're in the studio. They all make music together. They leave the studio. They all go out together. They chase chicks together. They go out of town together. They are those guys. Yeah. I've always had, like, different crews. I have, like, friends who are, like, my real friends who really high school. Then I have this other group of friends that I met after the stardom. And they're, like, a different breed of people that... I'd be like, let's go to Oakland. They're like, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to catch you on the next trip. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what do your high school friends think about your career? Because, I mean, you grew up decidedly middle class. So some of your high school friends must be like, yeah, you know, Todd, that guy we went to high school with, he's a rapper now. No matter where I landed in life, my life was always a mixture of elementary school. I was really good student, private school, but we didn't live in a really great neighborhood. We lived in a decent neighborhood on a good block where the drama was like a few blocks over or not too far. And then I had cousins that live all over the city and I spent a lot of time, you know, you always get dropped off at your cousin's house. I did. So, you know, spent a lot of time with the cousins. So I got it in all over the city. And when I moved to Oakland, I went to Fremont High and it kind of ended up in a different kind of environment where I had all these elements in LA of going to a really good private school in ninth grade. I went to Daniel Murphy. That was a good school. And living in the hood and hanging in the hood, just being a really good student. So, you know, when I ended up at a school like Fremont High in East Oakland, it wasn't the best curriculum. And I had the opportunity to kind of roller skate downhill and fall back on that ass kicking I've been getting all those years in private school. And you get in trouble and shit, you get your ass kicked. You know what I mean? So holding dictionaries and shit with your arms stretched out. Oh, you went to that kind of school where yeah. it's like you get hit with rulers or something? Yeah, hey, you running around the damn gym or some shit for punishment and writing shit over and over again on chalkboard, all that bullshit. So, you know, I get to a school where I feel like put me in these classes that weren't really up to par. And I'm just like, oh, I know what to do now. No homework. I'll just take the test without even studying and shit. Just kind of fucking up, you know? So I got a good blend, man. I Before the two short shit came out, I had a lot of ingredients to where people wouldn't be surprised. You know, the only people that probably were ever surprised were people that went to ninth grade with me. They were the ones who'd be like, is that fucking Todd on the video? <laughs> those guys. <laughs> Did you still hang out with some of those guys? I still see some of them. And uh, like Chris Spencer went there. He went there and he's one of the guys that knows I was on the uh, school books or some yearbooks or some shit. But it was a damn good school. man. Everybody who I know that went to that school is doing good in life. <laughs> Did you pick your own name as Too Short, or was that like a nickname you had back in the day? 
Because you're not that short. Let's get that out of the way. You're just not that short. People say that a lot, too. They're like, I thought she'd be shorter. But <laughs> I was 5'2". The day I turned 19 years old, I was 5'2". By the time I turned 20, I was this tall. I'm like about 5'8 now. In high school, I got to the 10th grade, and my brother had went to the school the previous year. He was in 12th grade when I was in 10th. His friends got into me immediately. It might have been one of the first days of school, that 10th grade year for me. And his friends immediately were like, man, ain't nobody about to call you Todd. This is not about to happen. Because I'm just moving to Oakland. And they were sitting around a group of them making jokes, trying to come up with a name for me. And then some dude who I guess everybody called Shorty came in the vicinity of me. And it was noticed that Shorty was taller than me. And that turned into the joke. You know, this motherfucker's shorter than Shorty. So somehow somebody just blurted out, we can't even call you Shorty. We're just fucking short. That was the joke. Yeah. That was some bullshit. And then I saw this movie not too long into the short joke, and it was uh, called Penitentiary. And the star of the movie, his name was Too Sweet. The character's name was Too Sweet. And he fucked all the bitches, and he beat everybody's ass. Somewhere during that movie, after that movie, somewhere, I was like, fuck, that's it. Too sweet, too short. And I just put a little sir in front of it back then. You know, you put the sir too short. I never carried the Sir Too Short into the rap career that much, but you listen to some Too Short records, and I have referenced it enough times. I went to the mall. I got me a little baseball hat. got some iron-on letters that said Sir Too Short. I got the jacket to match. Put the Too Short somewhere on the jacket or something, and I walked up to the school one day with the jacket and the hat on, and then they really didn't want to accept it at first. But you're like, I already bought this jacket and this hat, man. It's not going anywhere. Nobody ever really called me too short, by the way. Everybody calls me short. They didn't want to accept it at first. And I went to this party with my brother and his friends one night to tag along. And they get to this party and they tell me I couldn't go in. And this party's like really close to the intersection of a main street. And there's a gas station on the corner. So I'm just hanging at the gas station. I get into this long conversation with like this homeless guy, which is something that I've been doing my whole life is just having conversations with homeless people because it's just very interesting. Really? He asked me what my name was. I told him, I said, my name is Too Short. You know, everybody called me Short. And then um, when the guys came out from the party, they were like, oh, you know, let's go. We're going to go and jump on the bus. And the homeless dude was like, he said, oh, I short. Like the way he said it was like just so cool. Like we was just homies. They was like, what the fuck was that? So they all started mimicking him and saying, oh, I short. Turned it into something cool. And just me pushing the Too Short. I started rapping around the same time. My rap name was Too Short. I just kind of pushed it on him. So with the jacket and the hat, it sounds like you were good at branding somehow, intuitive. By accident, not yeah. on purpose. That was the thought process. They're going to fucking know me. Like I didn't know there was a word branding or marketing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I wore that fucking jacket and that hat all the time. I wore that hat to the fucking gold letters probably returning moldy green or some shit. And I used to keep a Sharpie. Like, you know, graffiti artists. Yeah, sure. But I was more what they would call a tagger. We didn't call it that shit. We just call it writing your fucking name on the wall. I was on a mission that anywhere I stopped, you were going to see my name. I look back on it like when my career started jumping off, I'm like, that was pretty slick to yeah. go around the city selling tapes and everybody listening to your shit. You're tagging up your name and you're wearing it on your head. and Ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Well, you sold the tapes out of the trunk of your car, right? Mm -hmm. Man, imagine if you had the internet back then. Well, I think it's the same thing. The tapes out of the trunk is a luxury. That didn't really fucking happen. That happened for a short period of time. I had a rap partner. His name was Freddie B. When we started selling those tapes, we either walked or we caught the bus. When later on, 
he bought a really raggedy fucking car and you could say we were selling them out the trunk then. On foot was a, a lot longer time period than yeah. in the car. Where the story really comes from is when we started selling independent albums and it wasn't the street tapes. It was like we really started making money and we'd drive around like a pickup truck or an SUV and we'd be dropping off boxes to the distributors and boxes to certain record stores that wanted to buy direct and we were selling fucking cassettes out the trunk for real. When you started selling tapes out of probably stuffed in your cargo pockets, trunk paper of a car. bag paper bag yeah <laughs> like yeah grocery store bag it's a fucking liquor store a little bag just full of tapes how long was that phase of just ramping up that would have been like about a three-year period that was strictly our hustle we didn't need any kind of fucking job we didn't need to sell drugs we just had to go make those tapes and keep making new ones and keep selling them and the only time i ever worked as a kid there was an easy way to make some money which was a being a vendor at Oakland A's games. You just go be there about an hour before the game. If these guys who were the guys who ran all the vendors, if they thought you were a hustler or they found out that you were a hustler, some guys was like, this is my boy, he's going to be a real hustler, then they would pick you and you could sell Coca-Cola like a vendor up and down the aisles and shit and probably make 50 bucks. Out of those cats who used to get out there, some of those games are early morning games or you got to get out there early to get picked. Some of those guys who are out there later in life became guys like me, like guys fucking made a lot of money and like really like had that hustle in them and really didn't mind hustling. And I just look back on that as that was a plus two. That was like randomly show up when you want to show up. Sure. If you didn't show up for two weeks. Nobody said it. I had a buddy who was the assistant manager at Jack in the Box and he had the nerve to get all his friends hired. And we were like some fuck up. So <laughs> we partied at Jack in the Box for about five months until I was forced to quit. Really? Why did they force you to quit? They probably singled out the fuck up crew. And we used to work on the shift with our boy who was assistant manager. And our boss, who um was the big boss of the store, he came to me personally and said, um, I need you to come to work six o'clock Saturday morning. And you have to work with the boss. That's his shift. So I'm already like not wanting to do this. And when I got there, I knew what the fuck was going to happen. He handed me a, a bristle pad, like with a handle, like oh, a bristle. Yeah, no, a toilet cleaner. He walked me outside to the drive-thru take this solution and you put on all the oil stains and then you take this brush and you rub them out. Oh, and then he gave man. me another chemical and a chisel. He said, hey, take this one, you put it on all the gum and you take this and you scrape it up. And I was like, okay, okay. As fast as he got out of my sight, I left that shit in the drive-thru. I just left. He was going to basically haze you until you bounced. I didn't scrape one piece of gum. Fuck that. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Too Short. We'll get right back to the show after these quick announcements. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, 
Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools to help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year, and I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. And now back to Jordan and Too Short. But you were such a hard worker in other ways. It's not like you were some lazy kid. You just didn't want to do that. Probably because he told you Jack in the Box was fun, though, man. Like, we really had a good time. It was like some kind of fucking summer camp or some shit where Mm -hmm. you're working with your homies. We're not being responsible. We're doing every fucking thing you can think of. And Do you eat there now, knowing what goes on? Not really. I (laughs) I don't really eat fast food unless I need to eat really fast. That's not often. I could tell you some shit we were doing, though. We were like, we would really, like, be generous to, like, people we knew. And people we liked or whatever, like you order a burger and get two, whatever the fuck, like just anything. I don't know. But then anybody that was mean got treated really bad, like really bad. I suppose every restaurant does that because I saw it. Like, you really going to say this shit to me and then ask me for some food? Shit's real. I hang out with friends who uh, disrespect waiters and waitresses. And I say, remember, 
yeah. to the server. Remember who doing all the talking. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I was polite and he was the one that was nasty. I had the it's salad. Not, it's not a group thing. Right. Running a business now and being a business now, do you look back at how you worked for that other business owner at Jack in the Box and think like, oh man, I hope nobody's doing that to me here? I just think that you got a guy who's a on French fries at Jack in the Box and you give him fucking 10 years and he's the fucking manager or some yeah. shit. Some guys who have worked their way up in the rankings of fast food have become ambitious enough to become owners sure, and entrepreneurs. And it's like some people in life are driven, man. And I just, at every point, wherever I was at, like when I was literally on French fries at Jack in the Box, my mind was like, doing this shit like you know so mm-hmm. very temporary i was motivated by other reasons not by a paycheck or the fact that i want to be the best french fry dipper right yeah but you were such a hard worker in other ways did you ever think about giving up with the rap and everything you'd ever think like man i've been selling tapes on the bus off the bus in a paper bag out of this damn trunk for three years no that was high school we were in high school it was, that was pocket so it was money. early that was, enough that was kind of money that bought a pair of shoes and New jeans and a lot of weed and a lot of beer and fucking wine and shit. And, you know, those years, that was, it was just fun money. I would literally go out and sell tapes just so that I'm like, okay, I'm going to give me some uh, new pair of jeans, some shoes, bag of weed, and we're going to get us some drink tonight. Like That was like my mission was to go for right. that much profit, save the money so the next day I could buy more tapes. You know, you live check to check. I was living tape to tape. Yeah, tape to tape, but early <laughs> enough. Do you ever think now, like, man, if I'd been more serious about it back then, maybe I would have done something different? Because you made it, obviously, very far, still fucking around in high school. Yeah, well, I could have just always been this independent guy. I don't think the guy who says that route in hip-hop that time, knowing who I was and how the industry was, I don't think that that guy ever becomes an international star. Like, I don't think you blow the fuck up, because even to this day, our guy on the internet who's hot as fuck, you can have this guy who uh, emerges from the ashes of the internet, and he's a mega internet star, but he's still got to partner up with somebody to become international. So, you know, I feel like I could have stayed that route, and I could have been just independent guy who just worked his regional success and just milked it and shit, but at some point, the way this game is, they're going to dangle that... The carrot. Yeah, and you're facing it like... The appeal to me was never the money that I would make. It was always like the audience I would get. That's why I went to the major labels for the bigger audience. I just, I knew it. I knew what I had. I knew what it did to people. And I knew for a fact when I never even had been in the studio, I knew that people wanted to hear what the fuck I was doing. I knew it. Did you ever have any doubt about it? Like, man, you know, this is getting harder or I got to go with this label. I don't know if I want to do this or they're trying to change my music. Maybe I don't have a music hard luck story. Nah, that's real though. Cause I feel like it's tempting to go, all right, let me think of this narrative where I almost gave up and then this didn't make it and then I suddenly turned around, but it's better to have a real yeah, I was watching documentary Dying Laughing with the big comedians talking about the journey of being a comedian and fucking it was, they all tell this pathetic ass story about the come up and the road and the sacrifices mm-hmm. and the learning curve and all this shit and I didn't have it. <laughs> didn't have that, nope. Middle class, private school, high school, cell tapes, all the way to the top. All the way. And both my parents are college graduates. I knew from the start, you know, when I was born, my mother drove a 66 convertible Mustang. My father always had like a little sports car. He went through, he was in a club called the Black Porsches Incorporated. It was like 1972, 73 or some shit. I just took from that because I wasn't spoiled and I wasn't living in some fat ass house or nothing. Just, I just had 
parents who provided, you know, they were, sure. it was good. And they put their kids in private school. So, you know, I was able to excel in private school and it just always gave me that advantage of, I feel like, man, it's not the individual and inner city public school system. I've seen it firsthand when I got to high school, but I can only fucking imagine what it's like in kindergarten. Yeah. And they're just saying, if you show up, you're going to go to the next grade. That shit is real. I've seen it. I've seen a motherfucker get a diploma who couldn't read and got the diploma for attendance. That's some bullshit. Yeah, that's scary. It seems like your upbringing was pretty normal, pretty middle class, right? I mean, you were down in LA and then up to Oakland. Your mom worked for like the IRS, right? That's like the most not ghetto, not thug Let me tell you something. Every guy I went to school with, elementary school, Catholic school, they all grew up to be gangbangers. That one year I went to Daniel Murphy. That was a different kind of curriculum. There's another school in LA that was an all boys private school. Catholic school was at Loyola. Those are like really good schools. That other shit, I went to a Catholic school in the hood. Like, that's not immunity. You still got to get from Catholic school in the hood to home in the hood. L.A. was like the opposite of Disneyland. Like, going from amusement park to amusement park, you're going from situation to situation. As a kid, I'm riding my bike to the store. Grown-ass men are like, give me your fucking bike. Fuck. Like, you got to steal your bike back. So somebody would steal your bike and you'd have to find out where they live and go get it? See him one day on the, give me my fucking bike back. Yeah. We saw a little dude ride my bike down the street. He stole it out of Thrifty's, out the drugstore. And I was only in that motherfucker for three minutes. He must have stolen it as soon as I just blinked. <laughs> seen him a couple of days later, my auntie took him off the bike and gave him a phone number and said, tell your mama whoever called me. And they called like, you took my boy's bike? Yeah, well, yeah, we over here on 84th Street. Come get it. And well, nobody showed up. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. And this is your whole neighborhood. So you're navigating this whole situation as a kid. And this later on informed some of your music, I would expect. Yeah, that was my only like real extracurricular activity outside of selling music that I just did to be bad. I was a professional bike thief. And I, oh, I, I had a chip on my shoulder because when I was a kid, people bigger than me always kept taking my bike. So we just took it as you're supposed to take the people little and you, you take their bikes. Oh, like, man, that, you paid it downwards. <laughs> That's just terrible. Saying. That's what I thought. That was just a ritual. Man. That was a... L.A. was that kind of city, man, where I'm not even going to say L.A. It just was that kind of life, man, where just like you got the nerve to roam around these streets and people bigger and stronger than you going to fuck with you. And then, you know, shit, what are you going to do? Fuck with the motherfuckers. That's just the way it is. <laughs> man, I wasn't really like a violent person. Yeah, not a violent so person. It was just trying to shut the homie shit. Plus, I really like building bikes. I had a parts thing going. It was some guys I came across in life. You had a bike chop shop? It was some guys I came across in life that had something similar to a chop shop. And then I was just one of those guys. I was like, I'm always going to have wheels. I feel like I have that in me right now about cars. Yeah. Is that your Porsche outside, the shiny one? I got to have wheels. I got to have accessories. I got to. But you bought that one outside, right? Yeah. My bike, (laughs) all my bikes would have like accessories. What? Like mirrors and horns on them? No shit. And I would really think that I didn't overdo it or I didn't make it ugly. Like people like, that's a nice bike. Thanks. I stole it from a kid smaller than me at a garbage. Well, a I would never store. ride the bikes I stole. I would immediately like break them down. And oh, I see. You trade off shit. Even when I was coming up in the rap game, I might have two cassette decks. And I'm like, want to trade a cassette deck for that equalizer? Gadget guy from back in the day. I get it. It's funny that your mom worked for the IRS. I don't know why I found that so funny because you have this track like the ghetto. It's basically like symbolizes the whole genre. And then your mom is like collecting taxes and doing spreadsheets. When I was young, she was like a real tax auditor. But later on, she was like training and management. But my mother was like really good friend of mine. A lot of people know that when I didn't 
lived with her for many, many years. We constantly saw each other or talked a lot, just conversations. And you know, she was just like a friend. And then when she retired, I moved to Atlanta and she always stayed with me out there. Big house, like have her own wing and shit and entertaining folks and shit. So a lot of people know the relationship and, and know how it was. And, you know, those some of the best times in my life, Atlanta, Georgia. Mom's living at the house, always cooking gumbo and dinner, always going down and family visiting because of her. And she's the kind of person that would keep the family together versus if you take her out the equation, we don't we even call each other. So you moved the center of the family into your own house. Exactly. She was the glue and she was the one who was big on Christmas and holidays and decorating. Everybody come down and then, you know, all that stuff. What did your mom think of your music? I mean, she must have had an opinion. You're close to your mom, and then you go up on stage, and she must My be like, what? My mother would be told, do you know your son is a nasty-ass rapper, and he says really nasty stuff, you know? And she's like, I heard people say that, but I never heard the music. She's like, I've never heard him curse ever. She never heard the music, never heard you curse ever? She heard the radio versions, whatever came on the radio. Right, yeah. So they were, like, cleaned up. Because I feel like, if your mom ever came to one of your shows, you'd be up there and you'd have to think twice before you said anything. She came to my show in Phoenix when she lived out in Phoenix and I knew she was going to like come say hello or whatever, but I don't know if I told her or if I, you know, just stay backstage. Yeah. And then I get ready to go on and I see her right up from like, if you guys don't go get her, I'm not going to do the show. So you got to figure it out. Because you don't want to swear in front of your mom. She did not want to know. And I, all I have to do is say, you do not want to see what I'm about to do. Because I can imagine this is what I think it must be like. So if I'm rapping or something like that and I got one of my black friends in the car and then I know the next word is going to be the N-word, I will not, I'm not going to say it, right? And you get that feeling bubbling up in your stomach where you're like, it's coming next and I just, I'm just going to hum the beat and then keep <laughs> going after line. that. Yeah. And that's how I feel like it must be. But you can't do that because you're on stage and your mom's in the front row and you're like, maybe I should say riches or witches instead. You know, one time I was in about Maybe 11th grade, 12th grade, maybe. I rapped for a long time before I told anybody in my family I was a rapper. Like, I was popular in the streets, and I would never come home and say, hey, you know, I'm pretty popular. I kept it to myself. I don't know when, where, how, and when, and why, but one day I went to go. One of my many notebooks, I was flipping through, and I found a letter from my mother. It was a long letter, and she put it right in the middle of some dirty-ass raps. It was a whole letter about just, like, how I was raised and do I believe the stuff in these songs? And <laughs> Oh, so she went through the notebook and was like, I need to intervene here. Yeah. <laughs> she was, but she never said anything to me. Just the letter. Do you still have the letter? It's like, fucking up. <laughs> this is immediately. Hell no. We'll be right back with more from Too Short after these quick messages. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. 
We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years going through endless resumes. Well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Too Short. Did you have like an awkward dinner conversation? Like pretend you didn't see that? Her pretend she didn't write it? She laid it all on the line in the letter. She was just, she was really saying what she said to me many more times in life. And it was like, you need to quit traveling around doing all that music stuff and just settle out and make a family. She wanted me not to be too short so bad. Didn't work out that way. Well, my mother stayed in my houses in Atlanta. We had two different houses. She witnessed the real player in me. I just couldn't hold it back. Like, I just couldn't hide that from her. Both houses we had, I always made it where I had a separate entrance that I could just not pass her. But somehow she would just see so much and just be like a different chick. It's it's mom. You can't hide anything. I had this retirement party, and she made this fucking joke about hearing me making girls moan. Oh, my God. (laughs) Your mom mentioned this? So she made a joke about me being a player. And then she would, like, really be against me. I had to be careful if I left a chick alone with her because she immediately starts giving them information on how to win. She's like, now, you got these other girls. They come around. But this is what you got to do. You got to do this. And then, like, she would pick and choose the girls that she liked, and then she would try to groom them to win with me. Oh, man. So your mom is, like, salting your game up. On one occasion, she found a girlfriend for me. So she made friends with a pretty girl around the house who's very church wholesome and I don't know what conversation they had, but she's trying to tell me, ain't she's pretty. Huh? You sound, I'm like, she looks boring to me. So then she would pick like a girlfriend that I had that kind of might have not lasted long or whatever. Mm-hmm. And somehow she links into this girl. And after I'm doing other stuff, they're working on getting me back to her. Oh, my gosh. Like really like working like. You should come go with us. She said, I'm like, oh, we're going to go get our nails done. You should come with us. Come to dinner with me and Charlotte. Her main motivation was grandkids. My God. <laughs> it, but it's it's kind of funny. This, this whole story makes perfect sense. And yet, <laughs> if you zoom out far enough, it's like, okay, multi-platinum rapper lives with his mom. <laughs> <laughs> Big ass house, give her her own wing. Right. You know what I would do? I would actually give her the house that would build me a wing. Like some super player shit. Then I can go up and be normal in the house. Right. And I go down in my wing and be like, wow, that's too short. Basically, you moved her in and then she was like, nope, this is my house. And I'm going to make sure that you get married. (laughs) You got more than you bargained for there. How has your career sort of matured with age? I mean, I heard that you recorded a song for Hanukkah. When I read that, I was like, that can't be right. It was some funny shit, though. It wasn't like dead ass serious Hanukkah. It was sort of like a challenge that TMZ called me with. And I was like, 
know a lot of Jewish people. I think I can make this happen. You're in show business, man. You know a ton. <laughs> but um, matured, man. Shit. I mean, I just got older. You know, like you don't really want to like be like an older, funny, daddy kind of tapped out on living life kind of person. But then you can't do the wild shit, like super wild. I'm somewhere in the middle. I get a little wild, but I'm conservative compared to the old short dog. But I still don't sit around and watch television shows that come on at 8 o'clock and go to bed early. I <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, if you're starting a recording session after this, how long are you going to work? Like eight hours or something like that? Probably. I never work past whatever time it is to go socialize. If I'm stuck in this motherfucker, I'll sit here and work till 2, 3 in the morning, but that's very rare. Most of the time, it's got to be done by like 9, 30, 10. You go out every night? No, but I do something. Something, something every night. Every night. I'm that guy that likes to do the fucking restaurants and chicks and just be in the environment and kind of doesn't have to be a nightclub, but it's got to get out. When I move around, I have networking in mind and it's all about like trying to run up on a deal. It's money. But you don't need to work anymore, right? I mean, you're 30 years in the game. You got handful of light of record. thing is not working. Magic Johnson gets up and go to work every day. Even when he wasn't the president of the Lakers, he still went to work every day. He worked. Yeah. I think some people are hustlers and we don't have a job, but we fucking do shit all day, every day. I never have enough time in the day to do what I got to do every day. Because you stay relevant even though it's been 30 years. That's it's tough. But I'm thinking people who aren't even celebrity relevant, who might have been or whatever, still have a full schedule. Like I never, I never want to have nothing to do. You go crazy? I don't know if it'd be crazy, but I just... Even if shit that I was working on a project with my bare fucking hands around the house, which I would never do, <laughs> even if it was that, I never want to have nothing to do. You always got to stay busy. Yeah, I hear you on that. I can't relax. My friend asked me how I relax, and I told him, basically, I prepare for my show. And they're like, no, 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 but how do you relax? What do you do on vacation? I'm like, research people that I'm going to interview. <laughs> so I feel like we have that in common. It's the same. They're like, no, 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 but what would you do if you had like the week left to drive, live? man. It's just drive. You just Some people are just driven. When I was a kid, I didn't have a fucking job, but I get up. I'm like, fuck, my bike's got a flat. First thing I'm going to do is fix this fucking flat. Then I'm going to go somewhere. Just go somewhere. Just ride it to somewhere. Just have a day. One of your records, or one of the earlier ones, was one of the first hip-hop records to use the word bitch, right? So that became like one of your trademarks. It became essentially a staple in hip-hop. But looking at this with 2020 hindsight, what do you think of popularizing that word and sort of like enshrining it in hip-hop culture? It's synonymous with rap, like get money, get bitches. Like it's really. Well, some people jump to conclusions and say, fuck, you should trademark it and charge people every time they say it. (laughs) But then it wouldn't be popular, would it? Right. It would just be mine. It wouldn't be, you have to license it before you say it. Have to check the legality. It wouldn't be fun. So, for one, I think the journey that the word took with and without me and where it ended up at is amazing to know that we started this in a bedroom onto fucking all these speakers and all these ears and all these fucking places all over the world. And I was in fucking Japan and this guy was rapping in Japanese and he ended his rap with bitch. Yeah. It's your ringtone. I heard it on your phone earlier. <laughs> and then to watch a TV show or a movie or a comedian on stage or another rapper, many other rappers and just all kind of shit singers. It's on all kind of albums. Do you think you could have done that with like any concept or any word though? Do you ever have any regret like, fuck, I should have used a different word or I should have used a different concept? Because now you've been bringing a different message to local Oakland neighborhoods. Life's not all about sex and money, but how do you put the toothpaste back in the tube on that one? You could look up this song 
It's called Call Her a Bitch. And in that song, I told myself before I wrote it, I'm going to say the word bitch more than anybody will ever say in a song, more than I've ever said. I think I counted, you get 232 bitches in the song. Jason's right. He'll get on that, my producer. (laughs) That'll be something you'll be like, hold on, let me check. I even had a challenge because I wrote the fucking song and I cannot memorize it because it says bitch so many times that I can't make my mind learn it. And I had um, put a challenge up to my whole crew. I was like, you put up a hundred dollars. I put up a thousand, a hundred to get you a thousand. If you can memorize the first verse, I've nobody won yet. I got to come back next time and take a thousand bucks. You can't memorize it. It's, <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible. I went to law school. I memorized a lot of useless stuff. Hell of a challenge. Hell of a challenge. Yeah. I'll give it a shot next time. Tell me what's going on in Oakland. Why are you so interested in the homicide rate? Tell me what, what's got you concerned over there. It's not just Oakland. It's just our cities in general. It's just trickle down. And like I said, it starts with the improper education in preschool, kindergarten, first grade. Like you set them up for failure right there on other opportunities. And it's a lot more to it, man. That whole just reading a book like The New Jim Crow and just realizing the bigger picture of what Ronald Reagan's drug on war became. and Mix that with crack cocaine in the hood and just those two things and everything they did just fucked up the fabric of the order of the hood. You know, when people had inner structure that was allowing people to survive, it had order, you know, and then the crack being introduced, the laws that were applied, the after effect of people killing over all the crack money. People getting long sentences for murders and small amounts of drugs just totally left the 80s babies with no supervision, nobody raising them. You talk to tons of them and they go, my grandmother raised me, my mama's friend raised me, my uncle raised me. I didn't have no mama. I grew up in foster homes. Now, those motherfuckers grew the fuck up. They all hit about 21 in the early 2000s. Now, after that, all those babies born 85, late 80s, early 90s, on to the new millenniums. In the inner cities, it ain't getting no better letting this whole shit just keep going. The same fucking cycle of to lock them up, to let them kill each other off, to nobody's raising the fucking babies. It's like, it's fucking crazy. So you got these adults who didn't get raised. They just like fucking raise themselves. And, it's, and I grew up around people that would probably fucking kill you, but they'd also fucking fight you. Or it was a thing where so-and-so got killed. And you're like, well, kind of had a reasoning, like something happened. Right. But like when you, you go, you could have seen that coming. My little brother went to the store and a motherfucker was like, walked up and shot him. And he didn't do nothing. Like why? That motherfucker was having a bad day. And just like, I don't like the way you look. Fuck you. Why you look at me like that? Fuck you. Just like shit that would have been like, you got a little aggression. You want to fight me? There's no fighting. The music and shit, man. We ain't arguing, man. (laughs) We just shoot. It's just getting real crazy because it's all in the music now, not the lyrics, but it's in the music where you really have groups of people in around the hip hop crews who are like enemies and shit. And it's like shit going on all over the country. It ain't just the music. It's the environment. It's a very fucking violent environment in our inner cities, all of Chicago, I can name you all these fucking cities, St. Louis, Philadelphia, whatever the fuck. It's just, it's not 
getting better. What would you tell a frustrated kid who thinks, I don't have any options besides drugs and gangs? Personally, I wouldn't tell you shit. I would try to show you opportunities, give you opportunities, and you got to breed that fire, that drive. It's so easy to get it. Yeah. But you just got to want it. So when you don't have an opportunity, what the fuck are you going to want? Nothing. That's what it's always been. And you got all these fucking inner city programs and all this shit, but that shit is like another hustle, getting the, the grants and shit. And ain't nobody really giving up fucking opportunities because this world ain't set up for that for everybody. We do see people slip through the cracks, kick the motherfucking wall down, kick the door in. I think that's done by being driven. I can tell you right now, if you apply yourself to something that you really care about for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, apply yourself to that shit. You have a very good chance of achieving those goals if you really put the fucking work in. You stand there at zero, and I tell you what you want to do is going to take you 10 years, you're 20 years old, you're like, fuck you. <laughs> but in 10 years, from 30 to fucking 60, you're going to be balling. And you're going to waste them 10 years going, I'm not doing fucking that shit for 10 years, but there's only so many people that get it. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you deliver? Because it's so far so good, man. Appreciate your time. I'm uh, on a mission right now for longevity of hip hop. And I think that a lot of people within hip hop are trying to put it in a box. You have a core group of older hip-hop fans and older artists who don't like what's being made now. And they're just like cutting the line off like, this is a line called real. The real's over here, fake is over there. That's not true. Then you have a core group of younger fans who are like, who gives a fuck about that old ass shit? Shit up out of here. And I really feel like an older artist like me doing what I do and doing what I'm about to do and doing what I've been doing is blazing the trail for the next artist when you decide to have or just happen to have a long career and you don't have any boundaries because the line was not drawn. The age limit was not set. The opportunity is there. I know for a fact, Jay-Z had a hit album when he was fucking 46 years old. We know that limit. So what's next? Is it somebody 55 going to have a hit record? Like what's next? Like, I don't know. There's going to be a limit one day. Somebody 87 years old going to have a hot rap record. <laughs> Might be you. I don't know, but I'm saying the limit will be set one day. It's going to be like, oh, did it hit rap record 103? I don't know. Is it going to stop at what age? But right now, it's approaching 50. So you don't think you'll ever stop doing this? I'll stop the day I don't make money off of it. Hell yeah. That's my job. Like I, This is the hustle. So you'll wrap it as soon as something flops, it's over? The same thing that bought me tennis shoes when I was 15 is buying me tennis shoes at 51. The same exact thing. You listen to a beat, write some words. Let somebody hear it, get paid. All right, I know that explaining hip hop lyrics is like explaining a joke and it might just ruin it, but I'm going to ask anyway. What does it mean, blow the whistle? I have no idea what that means. I listen to that song. The a song thousand was times. written as a sports metaphor to say that if you're doing shit in life that's just not in your lane, we're going to blow the whistle on you. It's a fucking foul. It's a fucking throw the flag, blow the whistle, end the play, stop it, throw him out the game, do whatever. That's, it's in the song, it's telling you doing too much drugs. You you can't hang with the big dogs. Foul. You're out the game. Blow the whistle. But some kids came to me one day and told me something that I didn't even know. That blow the whistle means suck my dick. Oh, okay. Because I hear it in strip clubs all the time, and I just thought, okay, it's some sort of undercover reference. And I was like, damn, it does mean that. <laughs> so every now and then during the show, I might ask an audience member, do you know what blow the whistle means? And they never get it right. But I'm like, it means suck my dick. 
But it really doesn't. It's just a sports metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> You'll let them think whatever they want, as long as it. If you find another meaning, I was like, that was dope. Blow, blow the whistle and suck my dick. Blow the whistle, like literally. Now I get why you don't want your mom at your shows. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, man. This has been great. Good shit. Great big thank you to Two Shorts. Interesting conversation. A little off the beaten path for AOC. I'm curious what you all think. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Too Short on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Too Short as well. And you can find the show notes for this episode, as always, at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. I also want to encourage you to join us in the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Or you can text in text AOC, that's AOC, to the number 38470. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, improving your connection skills, getting out of your comfort zone, applying the things you learn on the show in your life every day. And it's free. A lot of people don't get it. It's also online. No excuses. It's all designed to be done in your spare time. We'll also send you some of our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on persuasion tactics, networking and influence strategies, negotiation techniques, the science of attraction, nonverbal communication and charisma, reading body language, everything that we teach here on the show and at The Art of Charm. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and last but not least, a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC to the number 38470. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. And if you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay AOC and myself the highest compliment you can and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. <laughs>